This is going to cost me a fortune, this thing. Believe me. Belief. You know, I keep hearing Schumer. This is for the wealthy. Well, if it is, my friends don't know about it. Oh, they know about it now, Mr. President. Don't well, worry. I don't know why I came here tonight. Your friends do. I got the feeling that something right. Maybe not your voters. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, out in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. Got some good news for Michigan today. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's Great WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountain, California, KKRN, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Hey, um, remember when Republicans in Congress, you got to think way, way, way back to... When President Obama was in office. That's oh, my God. Decades that was like, ago. Oh, that's a century ago. Yeah. Uh, well, remember back then they used to complain about the uh, the Obama imperial presidency, all of his executive orders and actions, which they claimed were unlawful and unconstitutional because they bypassed Congress. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, I wonder if those same Republicans, those very same Republicans, will have any problem whatsoever with the Trump administration, uh, who is now considering a scheme to give $100 billion in tax cuts to wealthy investors with no Congress needed at all, apparently. We will be joined by Alexandra Thornton in a bit to discuss that new scheme that uh, is being considered uh, by the Trump administration. It was considered but rejected as unlawful by the George W. Bush administration, just to give you some idea of what we're talking about here. But Donald Trump may do it anyway, and I suspect his uh, friends in Congress won't care. In yeah, the least. They, Maybe, they, we'll see. Well, well see. you know, they seem to have a, a, a very uh, fluid idea of principles. You think? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're so kind, Desi Doyen. Uh, but let's start with some good news here for a change, because uh, we have some out of Michigan last night, just after we went off air. This was announced uh, first by the nonpartisan grassroots group Voters Not Politicians, On the Twitters, uh, they are the proponents of a ballot initiative in Michigan called Proposal 2, which would end 
partisan redistricting in the great state of Michigan. As we learned late on Tuesday, that proposition, Proposition 2, will, in fact, be on the November ballot after all, despite a challenge to it by state Republicans. The uh, not pol- voters, not politicians group announced on Twitter, in all caps, Proposal 2 is staying on the ballot. Michigan Supreme Court just ruled to ensure all Michiganders can vote on the ballot proposal on November 6, 2018. Opponents of that measure, including Michigan's GOP Attorney General Bill Shooty, I'm sorry, had argued that the uh, the proposal was just too broad to be placed on the ballot that would require the state to hold a new constitutional convention in order to change the way they currently uh, drew their uh, their U.S. House districts. The majority GOP state Supreme Court, however, rejected that argument in a four to three decision with, I believe, two Republicans on the court crossing over to join the Democratic appointees here. So uh, very good news under the state's current rules, as in most states still, the party in power of the state legislature gets to decide congressional boundaries. Republicans in the state legislature who drew the map back in 2011 after the last census have said that the boundaries that the, that they drew at the time were not drawn with any political bias whatsoever. Nonetheless, emails recently revealed by the Detroit News suggests that some Republicans sought to give their party an advantage in the uh, redistricting process. One of the emails, for example, from 2011, Jack Daly, the chief of staff for former Congressman Thaddeus McCotter, Republican of Michigan, he suggested that the uh, line should be drawn to, quote, cram all of the Dem garbage into four districts. Well, that's a nice way to refer to the people you represent. And, of course, a nice way to make it clear that this isn't partisan redistricting at all. Currently, uh, in the closely divided uh, state of Michigan, which has uh, voted for Democrats for president statewide for many years, decades, in fact, as I recall, uh, at least until 2016, nine members of Michigan's congressional delegation are Republicans. Just four are Democrats. There's one open seat that was previously held by Congressman John Conyers, who resigned last year. So essentially... Um, You have uh, nine Republicans to five Democratic seats, thanks to the way the Republicans drew their map back in 2011. So their partisan redistricting has worked for the last decade, but maybe no more. Depending on how Michiganders vote this November, they could prevent partisan redistricting for the next decade after the 2020 census is carried out if uh, if this measure is approved since it will now be on the ballot. This is uh, good news from the Michigan Supreme Court, great news for voters, and frankly, it should have been a no-brainer, given that we had noted um, last week from a New York Times report that so many Michiganders had signed petitions to bring the measure to a vote, 110,000 more than state law actually requires, that the group... Voters, not politicians, had actually ended their signature campaign 70 days short of the six months that were allowed for gathering petitions. This is wildly popular, it seems. Um, 
So the anti-gerrymandering initiatives now will be on the ballot in Michigan this November. Uh, also, good news, we noted last week in Missouri, another nonpartisan group collected 346,000 signatures in Missouri for a similar ballot measure. They only needed 180,000 <laughs> signatures. Wow. So that measure uh, will hopefully be certified uh, at any time if it hasn't been certified already in Missouri. In Utah, another very red state, another group collected 190,000 signatures. That's 75,000 more than were actually required to get the uh, proposition to end gerrymanders onto the November ballot. And in Colorado, both the Democratic-run State House and the Republican-run Senate voted unanimously back in May to place two proposals on the November ballot that would shift the duty to draw state legislature, uh, state legislative and congressional districts away from lawmakers and into the hands of an independent redistricting commission. So this is wildly popular. These, uh, you know, the, the idea, I saw one of the quotes, I, I don't have it in front of me, compared the awakening to the problem of gerrymandering and redistricting to um, the wild support that sort of came out of nowhere in a very short time uh, in support of marriage equality across the country and in support of uh, marijuana initiatives and so forth. So um, that's what experts are comparing this to, this movement from the grassroots, from the people to try to fix this terrible problem that has uh, crippled the nation over the uh, over the past 10 years, thanks to the Republican red map program of 2010. Yeah. And I also don't want to gloss over the remarkable effort that voters have to mount in each of these states just to get their representatives to actually represent them. I mean, they couldn't get this through the legislature by saying, hey, representatives, please stop doing this. Please stop drawing these partisan gerrymandered boundaries. They have to mount a statewide effort and talk to hundreds of thousands of people to get this done. And they couldn't even, which costs a lot of money, and yes. they, they couldn't even... And and effort and time. They on couldn't the even street. vote it. We had, you know, we've gone over this before, so I'm not going to go into the numbers. But you know, in many of these states that are so-called swing states, you had far more Democrats voting uh, for the U.S. House than Republicans, and yet Republicans would end up with a huge majority of those U.S. House seats. So the system was fixed, was rigged, still is fixed, still is rigged. As Donald Trump liked to call, likes to call it, a rigged system. Well, if he gave a damn about an actual rigged system, this is one thing that he could call for uh, to be changed across the entire country. But he hasn't because he doesn't actually care. He enjoys when it's fixed. Um, anyway, good news out of Michigan. Uh, and Sam Wang, the uh, Princeton political scientist and redistricting e expert, he had... Um, tweeted the good news. He said, truly a big year in Michigan. One, Citizen Redistricting Commission initiative is on the ballot. No more court challenges. Two, also on the ballot in Michigan, vote by mail, automatic voter registration, and oh. other reforms. Three, he adds, minimum wage increase and marijuana legislation. Michiganders go vote, he adds. So uh, as if you needed more incentive to show up and vote this year, um, in Michigan or elsewhere, there are a lot of good ballot initiatives uh, that are out there uh, f for the voting this year. So uh, also, so there's some good news and some more good news from the courts today, this time from the federal courts. 
President Donald Trump's executive order threatening to withhold federal funding from so-called sanctuary cities that limit local cooperation with federal immigration authorities is unconstitutional. That, according to now a U.S. appeals court on Wednesday. In a two-to-one ruling, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals agreed that the executive order exceeded the president's authority. Chief Judge Sidney Thomas wrote for the majority, quote, absent congressional authorization, the administration may not redistribute or withhold properly appropriated funds in order to effectuate its own policy goals. So in other words, you can't just just because this is a policy you believe in, Mr. President, you can't withhold funding that has been properly appropriated from Congress. That's what uh, kings do, not what presidents do, or at least not what they're supposed to do. U.S. District Judge William Oreck said in November uh, that the uh, that the order threatened all federal funding and that the president did not on his own have the unilateral authority to attach new conditions to spending that was approved by Congress. Um, but uh, the Court of Appeals uh, said that a part of the lower court ruling from Oric um, that there was not enough evidence to support a nationwide ban on the executive order, at least not yet, determined by that lower court judge. Uh, they sent the case back to the lower court for more hearings on that specific question. The ruling came in, uh, in lawsuits filed by two California counties, San Francisco and Santa Clara. The executive order to withhold punitively withhold federal money. Um, the order signed by Trump potentially jeopardized hundreds of millions of dollars in funding to the two counties, according to the lower court judge, Judge Oreck, um, citing comments by Donald Trump and the U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions as evidence of the order's scope. However, government attorney Chad Riedler told Oric that the order applied only to three Justice Department and Homeland Security grant programs that would affect less than $1 million for Santa Clara and possibly no money at all for San Francisco. Um, the judge didn't buy it. The lower court judge didn't buy it. And during arguments before the Ninth Circuit back in April, Chief Judge Thomas asked what the court was supposed to make of those sweeping statements by the Trump administration uh, about wanting to withhold money from sanctuary cities. They made it sound like they weren't going to give any money to these cities. Well, the government attorney, Riedler, said uh, that the order, the actual order, was much narrower and that the judges should not focus on comments by the president or other administration officials. Jeez. <laughs> kind of amazing. Don't yeah. listen to what the actual president of the United States says about his own policies, his own executive orders, uh, or don't and don't listen to anyone else in the administration. They're just making crap up, I guess. Especially since they made such yeah. a big deal about saying that his tweets were official pronouncements. His speeches were official pronouncements of policy. You know, come on, guys, make up your mind. The Trump administration, of course, says sanctuary jurisdictions uh, allow dangerous criminals back on the street. Not true. 
San Francisco and other sanctuary cities say that turning uh, local police into immigration officers erodes the trust that is needed to get people to report crimes, particularly in immigrant communities, which uh, so long as criminals know that folks there are unlikely to report crimes because uh, for fear of deportation, Uh, It makes those communities targets of even more crime. So for now, at least, uh, there's a bit more good news from the Ninth Circuit. Yeah, that's that's, that's excellent good news, because remember, that executive order, instead of taking criminals off the street, actually would keep criminals on the street, as you mentioned, because immigrants won't report those crimes. Therefore, those criminals will will never get picked up. Yep. Uh, But that's not what they told uh, Donald Trump on Fox News before he became president. So he's going to go with that. Uh, All right. Finally, before we take a a quick break and uh, come back with my guest today. uh, And I think that was the I think that was the good news portion of our program. All right. So so, you know, if you need to uh, turn off the radio, uh, you know, leave uh, pull over to the side of the road before uh, things go downhill. (laughs) You've been warned. Um, According to a uh, to a President Trump, at least we are living in, quote, the greatest economy in the history of America and the best time ever to look for a job. The details, according to a new analysis out today, however, reveal something a bit different. While unemployment may be low, workers are experiencing historically low wage growth while companies are responding to Trump's recent tax cut by uh, routing their profits predominantly to top executives and big shareholders in the form of stock buybacks. This comes from a Wall Street Journal analysis. That's Rupert Murdoch, uh, his uh, Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch, owner of the Fox News. Uh, This Wall Street Journal analysis of 1,111 companies looks at how they pay their workers. It was released Wednesday and illustrates the the, the details here in stark terms. Large companies have been actively padding the wallets of their largest shareholders through stock buyback programs rather than increasing wages for middle-class workers. The uh, journals Theo Francis and Yarna Serkes found that uh, medium pay, for example, median pay, for example, at McDonald's was just $7,017. That's median annual pay. That low-medium pay at McDonald's comes as the fast-food Goliath bought back $1.6 billion in stock in the first quarter of 2018 alone, just since last year's tax cuts. And yet they can only afford to pay their workers a median salary of $7,000 a year. At Walmart, with 2.3 million workers, half made less than $19,000. And yet, late last year, Walmart launched a stock buyback initiative to the tune of $20 billion in order to boost its stock prices, which disproportionately enriches the biggest stockholders in the company, according to the Wall Street Journal. So, and wasn't Walmart one of those companies who had, uh, right after those tax cuts, who had made a big deal about giving $1,000 bonuses to some of their employees? Just some, not even all, just some. Yet they could figure out uh, stock buybacks of $20 billion uh, when they have uh, half of their workers are making less than $20,000 a year. 
Similar story at Chipotle. Uh, the median pay there is uh, just over $13,000, yet last year it offered $100 million in stock buybacks. And they did it again this April. Yum Brands, uh, which owns Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut, etc., they pay their workers a, a median yearly wage of just $9,000. Hmm. Late last year, however, the company offered $1.5 billion in a uh, stock buyback program, and they uh, recently reported $528 million in buybacks in the first quarter of this year alone. A study from the National Employment Law Project and the Roosevelt Institute released on Tuesday found that between 2015 and 2017, companies spent almost 60% of their net profits on buybacks. They do this instead of investing in worker pay. So they're getting record profits, which means they're doing record stock buybacks rather than increasing worker pay really at all. Uh, the study found that uh, companies in the retail and food manufacturing industries spent respectively uh, 79% and 58% of their net profits to buy shares of stock back, according to the authors. Uh, this was the uh, state of play just, and this was before, this was before the tax cut passed last year. This is what they were already doing before they got this huge corporate tax cut last year which caused an even higher surge of buybacks, which, as Ryan Kornoski notes at Think Progress, reveals the priorities of these companies and the politicians who fought so hard to cut corporate taxes. He notes that if McDonald's had spent the money it poured into uh, stock buybacks between 2015 and 2017, it could have given raises of $4,000 per year to its nearly 2 million workers, to each of its nearly 2 million workers, according to that uh, study from the Roosevelt Institute. Um, but, uh, but there is good news ahead, at least for those investors, if not for those workers. The Trump administration is now considering a scheme to unilaterally bypass Congress entirely in order to give those same wealthy investors who own all that stock another $100 billion in tax cuts. Seriously. We'll explain after this with longtime uh, U.S. Senate Finance Committee advisor Alex Thornton. You're listening to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax Actually, she's the tax woman. Alexandra Thornton joins us momentarily. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, the Trump administration, according to the New York Times this week, is considering bypassing Congress altogether in order to grant a $100 billion tax cut, mainly to the wealthy. A maneuver that could cut capital gains taxation and fulfill a long-held ambition of many investors and 
so-called conservatives. I say so-called because they're these are the uh, the very same so-called conservatives who have pretended for years to oppose big government debt and deficit spending, but who cheered last year's giant tax cuts mostly for corporations and the wealthy. Despite the fact that, as pretty much all legitimate economists and tax experts warned at the time, the cuts would blow a giant hole in the deficit and, contrary to Republican arguments, would not pay for themselves through a booming, rocket-fueled economy that would increase revenues to the government. As we noted on a broadcast last week, in fact... The amount of corporate taxes collected by the federal government has plunged, has plummeted to historically low levels in the first six months of the year following the December tax cuts, pushing up the federal budget deficit much faster than even legitimate economists had predicted at the time prior to passage of that tax package last year. And all of this puts the annual deficit on track to pass $1 trillion for much of the next decade. Moreover, as we also discussed, rising wages for the so-called forgotten men and women of the middle class, as promised by Republicans and Donald Trump, supporting those tax cuts have also not occurred. With most of the increased earnings staying in the pockets of the wealthy and Wages remaining flat, and in some cases, once inflation is factored in, workers are now earning less under the GOP scheme. So with all of that, the administration is now mulling another scheme to give even more money to the wealthy, as much as $100 billion over the next decade, while decreasing incoming government revenues and increasing federal debt and deficit in the bargain. That's just a few of the reasons uh, I describe these folks as so-called conservatives when I use that C word at all. To accomplish all of this, The Times reports Trump's Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said during a recent interview that the Treasury Department would change the definition of the word cost as specified in the Revenue Act of 1918 for calculating capital gains, allowing taxpayers to adjust the initial value of an asset, such as a home or a share of stock, for inflation when they sell that asset. The move would face a near-certain court challenge. It could also reinforce a critique of Republican tax policy from the left at a time when Republicans are struggling to sell middle-class voters on the benefits of the tax cuts that President Trump signed into law late last year. Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer blasted the proposed scheme telling The Times, quote, at a time when the deficit is out of control, wages are flat, and the wealthiest are doing better than ever to give the top 1% another advantage is an outrage and shows the Republicans' true colors. He added, furthermore, Mr. Mnuchin thinks he can do this on his own, but everyone knows this must be done by legislation. Well, does everyone know that? And even if they do, why should that stop the Trump administration from doing whatever they want, no matter what the law actually requires? It hasn't stopped them from doing much else whenever they want to, no matter how many times the courts have had to eventually step in to stop them. Joining us to discuss all of this and what it really means versus how the Republicans who favor it are now spinning it is Alexandra Thornton. She's the Senior Director of Tax Policy for Economic Policy at American Progress. 
Prior to that, she spent nearly a decade as a tax policy advisor on the U.S. Senate Finance Committee. Alexandra Thornton, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, let's start here for those of us who hear the term all the time but may not be economists or tax experts and may not fully understand what it actually uh, means and why Republicans in particular have spent so many years, decades now, trying to cut them. What are capital gains taxes? And the second easy question, why do Republicans in particular hate them so much? Well, most people, your average American, uh, makes their income from wages or salaries, mm-hmm. right? Um, but and and there's uh, and people who who are wealthier in our country are growing, are increasingly making their income from what we call capital, capital income, and that comes from investments in stock and um, real estate and expensive assets of various kinds. So that's called capital income. Mm-hmm. You don't earn it by going to a job, you earn it by investing it. And uh, so, so basically what, what we have is a tax on capital income, just like we do on wages and salaries, only the tax on capital income is actually much lower than the tax on wages and salaries. It's 20% versus mm-hmm. 37% top rate on wages and salaries. So, so these are already uh, lower taxes than uh, these folks would would have to pay if they went out exactly. and actually worked for a living. Okay, that's right. And, and so, uh, Republicans, uh, why is it? And, and am I right about this? Do Republicans, in particular, hate these sorts of taxes, or is this really Republicans and Democrats uh, alike uh, who are wealthy who would like to see capital gains taxes uh, cut? Well, this is all part of the conservative mantra that uh, if we tax investment, um, that'll slow down economic growth. Um, there's really no evidence for that at all. Um, and, and so basically what they say is we need to cut taxes on any kind of investment income um, and that eventually that, that'll mean that we'll be able to invest in more things in the economy, um, which will make, uh, you know, workers more productive. And when they become more productive, their wages can go up and there will be more jobs. And it's a fairy tale. I mean, it basically has never happened. Um, it doesn't work like that. Um, the economy is affected by a huge number of other things. And the truth of the matter is that we need uh, tax revenue in order to, um, you know, fund the kinds of things that keep our economy stable, to fund infrastructure, education, worker training, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. These are all important priorities for American people. And, um, and so we need tax revenues for that. And if, if we didn't tax capital income, then wealthy people would definitely not be paying their fair share. They don't now because we have a tax code that's very skewed in favor of the wealthy. But if, if they didn't have to pay tax on capital gains um, uh, on their capital income, then uh, this would be a ridiculous economy where uh, low and middle income workers would be funding everything. Uh, I think the argument could be made that this is a ridiculous economy uh, (laughs) where low and middle income are funding everything. But uh, the capital gains taxes already were slashed, uh, if I recall, by this administration under this Congress, as well as previous administrations. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, we 
capital income is taxed in a number of different ways, and mm-hmm. and definitely um, this most recent tax bill uh, cut corporate taxes. Uh, the corporate tax is in effect uh, a, a tax on capital, mm-hmm. and um, and so we slashed the corporate income tax from thirty five percent down to twenty one percent in this recent tax bill. I should say President Trump and congressional Republicans right. did, uh, because Democrats didn't uh, participate at all or weren't allowed to, mm-hmm. and um, so. Yes, that's exactly right. We already have very low taxes on capital income, capital gains, and um, and now they want to make it lower. Right. How does tell me about how this proposal, which stretches back to reinterpret the 1918 Revenue Act law, how how does it change? How would it if they implemented this? How would they change the uh, current capital gains calculation? And, you know, I got to tell you, Alexander, as I was reading the story and seeing that this had to do with redefining the, 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 the word cost as specified in the Revenue Act, I'm sort of thinking of, uh, you know, reminds me of what the definition of is is. I mean, they're changing... <laughs> Well, explain what what they would do in uh, redefining this word. Yeah, well, so basically Treasury isn't supposed to make the law, right? Treasury is just supposed to do what Congress tells it to do to implement the law. Now, sometimes in the tax area, Congress will pass a tax law that has some very technical aspects, and and it'll give Treasury authority to essentially um, determine the details of how it will be implemented. But in this case, we're talking about something that's pretty fundamental. As you say, it goes back to 1918. Since 1918, everyone has understood that when you are calculating how much gain you've had on the sale of a capital asset, you know, stock or whatever, mm-hmm. that you subtract the actual nominal price that you paid for it whenever it was you purchased it. And that price is not the inflation-adjusted price. It's the nominal price you paid for it. And so if I bought it for $100 10 years ago and I sold it for $200 uh, this year, Mm -hmm. my gain would be $100, and I would pay capital gains tax of 20% on that $100 gain. Mm -hmm. What what they want to do is have Treasury say reinterpret that 1918 statute and define cost like the original cost of it that mm-hmm. you purchased, which we call the basis, um, to redefine that as the inflation-adjusted cost. And this issue, you know, that so essentially what that would do is if there had been, you know. $80 worth mm-hmm. of inflation over that 10 years, they would now pay uh, capital gains tax on only $20 instead of $100. Okay. And so, so you know, this, this is ridiculous because in some cases the inflation adjustment might even get rid of all their gain and they might actually have a loss or something. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Well, uh, Republican Texas uh, Congressman Kevin Brady, uh, chair of the powerful uh, House Ways and Means Committee, said, I, don't, uh, I think we ought to look at not penalizing Americans for inflation. In other words, he's suggesting that if you uh, if you go ahead and invest, whether it's real estate or stock, uh, and uh, you get, you know, your investment is hit essentially by inflation, you shouldn't have to pay the cost for that. Is he right in any way about that? 
Well, you know, part of the reason why those who who say we should have this lower rate on capital gains that we currently have already, a very much lower rate, mm-hmm. 20% instead of 37%, is because they say because of inflation. And so if you were to adjust capital gain for inflation, then by that reasoning, you should then tax the gain that's left uh, at ordinary tax rates. Uh, so it's already lower, the capital gains tax is already lower than regular uh, wages taxes because of that uh, concern about inflation. That, that's, one, that's one rationale that's advanced mm-hmm. for why they have a lower rate on capital gain, yes. Now, the uh, New York Times explains that the George W. Bush administration looked at this, uh, this exact same thing, looked at uh, right. redefining cost, uh, decided it could not be done uh, by unilaterally. That would have to be done by Congress. And this is just another reason why this drives me nuts, Alexandra Thornton. Uh, you know, these are the folks who call themselves conservative, the media, and yes, Democrats call them conservative, but they want to change the definition of the word cost. These are the folks who at least pretend that they believe in the original meaning, the original words of a law or a constitutional clause. If lawmakers in 1918 wanted taxes indexed to inflation, they could have included that in their law at the time, no? Or at least isn't that what Republicans would be arguing if this was something that they were actually opposed to? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, this the hypocrisy is also that, you know, here is this administration that's been talking about uh, regulatory overreach and wanting to get rid of all these regulations. Now they want to go beyond their authority to pass a regulation that gives this gigantic tax cut almost exclusively to the wealthy. It's it's incredibly hypocritical, but, um, it's, but it's the type of it's the type of unilateral action that they were blasting uh, the Obama administration for for exactly. doing on their own in the past. Exactly, exactly, and 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 the truth of the matter is, you're absolutely right. During the first Bush administration, the Treasury Department's General Counsel and the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel looked very thoroughly at this issue and said that Treasury did not have the legal regulatory authority to allow indexation of basis for inflation, period, end of story. And, uh, and, and you know, not only that, between 1918 and now, in addition to what I just mentioned, mm-hmm. there have been a number of Supreme Court cases as well as contemporaneous Treasury pronouncements, other provisions of the Internal Revenue Code, interpretive canons, legislative history that have all said cost is the price you paid, not the inflation-adjusted cost. Mm. Is there any reason to believe that if they did move forward with this uh, new scheme unilaterally and if it was challenged in the courts and the stolen U.S. Supreme Court said, no problem, you guys do what you want there, uh, is there any chance that it would even do what it is they are claiming, or would it be more like what we saw with the tax cuts, at least so far, going back to uh, December of last year, which have uh, seemingly, uh, as I described at the top of the segment, blown a hole in uh, in the, the federal deficit? Yeah, actually, this could blow a bigger hole than they expected. It could be a lot more than $100 billion. Um, and the reason why is because if Treasury did this, um, you know, th- this this Treasury's even their arguable, uh, even e- even their claim that they can do this mm-hmm. um, has its limits, and it would actually open up a huge number of loopholes um, because 
taxpayers would be able to take advantage of other uh, parts of the tax code in combination with indexation of capital gains to inflation to actually game the tax system. Mm. Um, and I won't go into the details of how, but part of it, for example, involves using debt to purchase the asset and you, you take deductions for the interest on the debt that you use to purchase the asset, then you sell it later, you get an inflation adjustment, you can actually end up double-dipping. Oh, man. And, I, I uh, thought you weren't going to go into that part of it, uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, that's yeah. all I'll say, okay. but the point is, they're, they're the kinds of loopholes that no one would even begin to argue Treasury has the authority to close. It, it, it really, if, if one even wanted to do this, which I, I think it's a very bad idea, but if one wanted to do this, one would have to look comprehensively at the tax code, at all the interactions that would happen, and make sure that these loopholes were closed. So that means, and, and you, know, you know who benefits from loopholes. It's, it's wealthy people mm-hmm. who can afford to have, you know, well-paid advisors, tax advisors who've been combing the code, who know it inside and out, and can show them how to, use, you know, game the loophole. Yep. And so that would cause this provision to cost even more, um, up to maybe $200 billion over 10 mm-hmm. years. Um, it's hard to know. And, and, you know, it's just insane when you think about it and you compare it to, you know, uh, the the things that could be done, you know, with that revenue in our current um, situation yep. here um, with our budget. Uh, do you have any sense from uh, from your years working in the U.S. Senate? Have you uh, heard from folks in the U.S. Senate on either side of the aisle? I guess I'm most interested in um, if, if Republicans would actually stand for this or if those same people who used to complain about debt and deficit, the people who used to complain about Barack Obama and his imperial presidency just doing things on his own, um, do, do you have any sense other than the, um, the, the you know, Schumer and, and some of the Democrats are quoted there? I don't hear a lot of Republicans saying, no, this would be uh, overstepping by the uh, by the executive. Do you have any sense they would actually challenge any of this? No, no, I don't. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, we've all been surprised uh, in the last year and a half at the things that the Republicans in Congress have been willing to accept, you know, that that previously they would have stood up for. And so I, I, I don't have a lot of faith in uh, Republicans standing up on this one. And, you know, it would benefit their constituents, their donors. So it would, yeah, would, they're not their constituents, but their donors, their constituents, sorry, yes, yeah, donors. wouldn't yeah. Uh, get any much, much of a deal out of this. Exactly, exactly. Uh, speaking of whom, uh, last uh, question here for you, Alexander Thornton. When Republicans uh, had rammed through their tax cuts, those huge tax cuts late last year, they seem pretty convinced at the time, at least, that this was their ticket to uh, to re-election victory uh, this coming November. The popularity of those tax cuts would overcome all of the other Trump administration disasters that were going on. Um, how's that strategy now looking as you see it, as we're uh, just over three months out from the uh, crucial midterm elections? Well, it, it seems pretty clear that it's not nearly as popular as they hoped it would be. Um, poll after poll after poll shows that uh, it's it's not all that popular. Um, I think that people didn't see the increased income. They um, 
and they also have been it's it's pretty clear from the polling that people are upset about the huge tax cuts that have been given at the top and um and they also hear about the stock buybacks i mean stock buybacks are at almost a, an historic high and they know meaning, that meaning the the companies uh, reinvest in their own stock rather than taking that the money they've made from the tax cut and increasing wages. In, exactly, or investing it in some way that will help uh, ultimately increase wages. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, you know basically um, the direct beneficiaries of stock buybacks are uh, are the shareholders, and mm-hmm. you know the top. Ten percent of the population owns about eighty-six percent of the total value of stock in this country. So, through both indirect and direct holdings. So, um, you know, so people are seeing that they see that their wages have not budged. Um, you know, there's been a slight uptick in in wages, but that's been offset by increases in prices, mm-hmm. as you were mentioning in your opening. I mean, gas prices over the first year and a half of the Trump presidency have increased by almost eighteen percent. Mm-hmm. So that means, you know, $350 a year for the average family. Uh, meanwhile, big oil got, you know, $11 billion of tax breaks in the first year of the tax tax bill. So, um, and, you know, the bonuses that were touted when the tax bill was first passed, actually, when you added them all up, they only affected a tiny percentage of workers. And, and they were mainly bonuses that would have been given anyway that were simply accelerated mm-hmm. by companies that wanted to take advantage of the larger tax deduction under the prior law at 35% instead of 21%. And, of course, investment indicators are very weak, too. Yeah, uh, none of this is looking good. My only question is, uh, do the American people hear it? Do they understand it? Or uh, does, you know, the president, the Republicans and their bully pulpit going out there and frankly lying about the effects of the tax cut? Does that win the day Uh, or do we the people? I guess we'll find out in a few months. (laughs) Alexandra (laughs) Thornton, Senior Director of Tax Policy for Economic Policy at the Center for American Progress. You can Find her, her work, and much more at AmericanProgress.org. Alexandra, really appreciate you joining us uh, today for the first time on the broadcast. Hope you don't mind if we bother you again in the future. I'm happy to. Thank you, Alexandra. Okay, uh, we'll take a quick break here and come back with, I don't know if this is good news or bad news. I don't know what to make of this news. It's interesting news. We'll see if you agree. Uh, Yeah, we'll see if you agree after this. Uh, I'll take a quick break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. 
That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. This is a terrible song, isn't it? <laughs> yes. But my mom loves it, so I'm playing it. I love you, Arizona. Love you, Mom. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblogs.com. Uh, yeah, it's, it really is a terrible it's song. It's schmaltzy. Schmaltzy as can be. <laughs> um, but anyway, Mom likes it, so there's that. Uh, all right. This is an Arizona-related story, sort of, uh, that uh, Durati of Daily Coast brings uh, to my attention. Uh, very interesting. Okay, so as you know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has canceled the traditional August recess for the U.S. Senate in order to push through Trump's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, Brett, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, before the uh, next term of the U.S. Supreme Court begins in uh, October, as well as Trump's other judicial nominees ahead of the November midterm, in which it's quite possible that Republicans could lose their bare, well, two-vote, two but really one-vote right now majority, one-vote majority with John McCain out battling uh, brain cancer back in Arizona. So what does Arizona's other Republican Senator Jeff Flake do with McConnell having canceled the August recess so they could stay at work. They could push these uh, judicial nominees through before maybe losing majority control. Well, apparently, according to Jeff Flake's Twitter feed and photos that he posted along with it, he's taken off. He's gone to Zimbabwe. Oh, wow. To observe the beautiful sunsets, their historic election going on uh, over this past weekend. Uh, the first one, first legitimate one they've had in about 38 years to replace uh, President Robert Mugabe. Uh, and as uh, Durante notes, to extol the virtue of paper ballots. Jeff Flake posted a photo of a bunch of folks in Zimbabwe who are hand counting. They're gathered around a table. Uh, hand counting a bunch of, of hand-marked paper ballots. And Flake added the caption, quote, counting ballots in a tent in rural Zimbabwe by kerosene and candlelight. Democracy doesn't get any better than this. Wow. Now, uh, it, maybe it does get better. There are some questions about the results from that elections, at least according to the two uh, various presidential candidates who each seem to be claiming victory before the results are actually released. Um, but in, in any event, it's uh, interesting. You know, Flake has become an opponent of Donald Trump, at least a little bit, even though he's been voting pretty much in favor of pretty much everything that Trump happens to be in favor of. So we can call him a vocal opponent of Donald Trump, not necessarily a voting not opponent. Not a voting opponent, right. At least exactly. on Trump policies. And instead of running for re-election, as you know, Flake is leaving the Senate this year. Um, but being gone right now in this month of August apparently is causing some problems for Republicans and their plan to push through all of these federal judges with lifetime appointments and to push through their Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh as quickly as possible. The Senate Judiciary Committee, which Flake is on, is comprised of 11 Republicans and 10 Democrats. 
So with Flake gone, his absence ties up the committee. That means that no new nominees can actually go through the committee and get to the floor while he is out on the Zimbabwean trail, as uh, (laughs) Durati called it. Uh, at least as long as uh, none of the Democrats uh, flip over and vote with the Republicans. So this sort of puts a bottleneck on things in the uh, U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for now. Durati asks, is Flake finally doing something here? Well, Virginia attorney and writer James Hassan thinks that, yes, Flake may be doing something here, that this actually may be some action on purpose by Jeff Flake to sort of hold things up. Hassan writes, here is the upshot of what Flake is doing. Mitch McConnell kept the Senate in session in August instead of recessing so they could confirm Trump's judicial nominees. But Flake took his own recess for most of August He's on the Judiciary Committee, so now they cannot confirm judges there. So he adds nominees that have not already gotten out of committee will be stuck there in committee. Meanwhile, nominees that have gotten out of committee and are are waiting a floor vote will now require Pence, Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, to break the 49-49 tie. Because remember, they got a 51-49 advantage, the Republicans do in the U.S. Senate, but John McCain of Arizona is out, so that's a 50-49 majority. And now Jeff Flake is in Africa for as many as three weeks, Hmm. we're told. That brings it down to a 49-49 tie, presuming all Republicans vote one way and all Democrats vote the other. That means Mike Pence has to stick around in town himself instead of campaigning for Republican candidates as he was planning to do. I think the U.S. House, they're out. They're out and about and uh, uh, politicking for uh, for the November elections. Mike Pence can't go out and help them, at least not easily. Hassan adds, Jeff Flake is screwing the GOP caucus and conservative causes generally by slowing the pace of confirmations. And he's either doing it intentionally or he's doing it because he just doesn't care and would rather vacation. (laughs) Well, either way, I guess the American people benefit because at least it slows down for at least a little while. Slows down the damage that these people can cause. Yeah. And uh, especially the appointment in the broader lower judiciary of all of these uh, crazy radical right wingers into lifetime judicial appointments, not just Kavanaugh. Yeah, but everybody at the lower levels. Former Obama justice appointee Eric Columbus had responded to Hassan's thread on this to ask, has Flake said he's gone for most of August? Uh, Hassan replied, that's what I've been told by Senate staffers who are justifiably not thrilled about it. So uh, they're all losing their vacation. Uh, Apparently not Jeff Flake. And he's uh, maybe can't tell, but he maybe he's doing this on purpose to uh, to hold things up, to push back at his party a little bit. Um, Meanwhile, uh, Daily Kosa's Durati observes, uh, guess who's chairing the tied up Judiciary Committee today? And what is he doing? And he quotes from uh, Democrat Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, who tweets, I will chair a Judiciary Committee hearing on the Trump administration's cruel immigration policies and the ongoing failure of their family reunification efforts. It's the first of many steps to unravel the damage done and make sure it never happens again. So that is what is now going on, or at least was going on, I think, yesterday in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, not this funneling through of all of these federal judges 
that Mitch McConnell had uh, had hoped and planned for. Instead, instead of Chuck Grassley, uh, who chairs the committee, you've got Dick Durbin, the Democrat, running uh, a hearing on Trump administration's immigration policies. Well, that's a switch. I know. So thanks, Jeff Flake. <laughs> Well, uh, let's see how long it lasts. I, you I mean, know, and I don't know if he's actually doing something here or not, uh, but I think this should be interesting to watch. Yeah, you know, uh, like I said, it, it's it may only be temporary, but hey, a temporary reprieve is still a reprieve. Hopefully, more Americans will recognize that Brett Kavanaugh is a danger on the Supreme Court and will actually make the effort to call their senators to push them to, you know, at least the, the swing senators who yeah. have a who may have a chance at saying no to what Kavanaugh would do on the Supreme Court to women's reproductive rights and environment and all of that. You know, Murkowski, uh, Lisa Murkowski, Republican from Alaska, and uh, Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, have both said that they have not received a whole big public outcry for Mm. Kavanaugh. So, you know, now is maybe a great time for a push. And it's not because uh, people favor Kavanaugh. It's because they don't know because so much else is going on. People are away on their own uh, summer vacations, whether they're in Africa watching the election or not. They're away on summer vacations. There's all of this other crap that is going on that uh, with the Mueller stuff, with uh, Donald Trump's uh, tweets, with, you know, the family separation policy. So the Supreme Court stuff has kind of disappeared. And that's maddening, and it should be frightening. So, by the way, if you want to call your senator wherever you may live and let them know how you feel uh, about uh, putting a guy on the Supreme Court who is going to change change this nation and who we are and what we do and what we believe in and the rights for every American for generations, if you'd like to prevent that, you can call Congress at 202 224 What's that number again? 202-224-3121. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Alexandra Thornton of the Center for American Progress, and to everyone uh, within earshot of me today. Uh, Thank you for joining us as ever. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog, and as always, my huge thanks to those of you who help us—not help us—ensure uh, in, in, that we stay on your public airwaves. We only do it through your help. Those of you who stop by BradBlog.com/slash/donate, I can't thank you enough. In advance, BradBlog.com/slash/donate. That is it. Until we meet again. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. You're the magic.